You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleinman. Today on the show, we're joined by Avishai Green, who will be talking about populism and the rhetoric of bullshit. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In a moment, we bring you our discussion of populism and bullshit. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is Wednesday, August 4th, and we're going to be discussing for our current events section on this episode, we're going to be discussing the January 6th commission, which has been set up to investigate the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Andrew, I was struck that this seemed like an appropriate topic for our current events segment today because our main segment is a discussion with Avishai Green about bullshit rhetoric and populism. And it seems like this January 6th commission, if anything, is like an investigation into the nature of, of objective reality. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I didn't think of it like that, but but yeah, it, it's it's sort of uh, sort of the the anti bullshit uh, committee. Uh, after they got the the prime bullshit artists uh, off of it, the bullshit's not going to be within the committee now. It's, a, it's an interesting point. It's it's the anti-bullshit forces are fighting back. Yeah, and the whole exercise seems kind of absurd. You have this committee to like investigate what we all know happened and to try to prove to the world that what we all saw happen actually happened. And then you got the Republicans who are doing something very different with the committee. They're just sort of throwing everything against the wall to see what sticks. But... It's not like they actually think they're going to convince anyone of the truthfulness of their alternate facts, their alternate narratives. They aren't really there to like present like a, a case for like a different even ob- ob- objective reality. They have a different conception of what they're trying to do. It's more about playing to the base, to, as a, about proving their loyalty to Trump, about trying to like gain some partisan advantage of the whole thing and delegitimate it. Um, and this is you know, a topic we're going to get into with Avishai Green later in the main segment, sort of this, this different approach to even the nature of truth. Absolutely. Absolutely the case. What seems to be the case is that you had the, uh, the impeachment hearings and, and, and other stuff, and the mainstream media would you know, write up about the show, clips of the main line of stuff that was going on and Fox and all of them would be showing Jim Jordan mouthing off about some nonsense or something like that. That is going to be a lot harder now. Even Fox basically carried the initial hearing, but what they're going to have to do is, well, you know, split it. Here's what the committee says, and here's what Laura Ingram and, and Tucker Carlson say. It doesn't look like it's playing well. As you say, they're, they're throwing everything up against the wall to see what sticks Nothing really is sticking. They're, they're, they're not going to give in and say what they're really for. That harkens back to uh, our conversation a while back with Keith Con Harris. You know, they're still doing denialism, but the lid is off. The, the idea that the Republicans and the base and all these people are pro-law and pro-order and pro-law enforcement and patriotic, and nobody can believe that anymore to the extent that any of them believed it. They can't believe it. It all comes down to, you know, white supremacism and owning the libs. Well, the real question is whether or not anyone's going to have to pay the price for uh, January 6th, other than all the the actual seditionists that are being rounded up by the FBI. Are, are people in the halls of Congress going to be held responsible? Is Trump going to be held responsible? Are people amongst the police and other security services going to be held responsible for, for letting this thing happen and, and citing it. Right. Well, there, there, there are two things. I mean, I, I think that this committee is just for investigation, although it can recommend 
uh, actions, but the actions would have to be taken by the executive branch, by the Department of Justice. Although the committee has kind of limited police powers to enforce subpoenas, I guess especially against uh, other, other members of Congress. But that's about it. Criminal prosecution, no. I mean, there is a civil prosecution. There's a congressman in, in California who's suing uh, other members of Congress, you know, for endangering uh, his life, his civil rights, and everything by, by instigating this insurrection. That's the Swalwell suit. But from what I can see, the committee is set to issue a slew of subpoenas and to do what it takes to, to enforce the subpoenas. That's what I think I heard the chair say, but I've heard other members of the committee say as well. And we, we got inklings of that even before when Kevin McCarthy puts uh, Jim Jordan on the uh, committee and Nancy Pelosi turns him down and says we can't have a material witness serve on the committee. Then Liz Cheney says the same thing. Can't have a material witness serve on the committee and we also know from beforehand that on January 6th itself, Jim Jordan like takes Liz Cheney by the arm and just says to people, we got to get the ladies out of here. And she says, get your fucking hands off of me. You did this. You know, you're responsible for this. So she knows something. She knows that he knows something, that he's more than actually just a material witness. You know, like, they're all material witnesses. They were all there that day. But material witness here has the meaning of basically a co-conspirator or somebody who was in on what Trump and his people were planning and doing. And then, I don't know if you saw, but they had a... Uh, somebody interviewed Jim Jordan several days ago about did he talk to Trump on January 6th? He goes, well, I, you know, but he's stuttering and stammering and hemming and hawing, and he's like, I, well, yeah, you know, I talk to the president a lot, like every day, like, like, what's the deal? It's like, so it's clear that they want to cover up. They wanted to be on the committee to cover up. I don't think that the Democrats want to cover up, and I think that they're not going to cover up for a very obvious reason. Their lives are actually on the line here. Their physical safety is actually on the line, those people in Congress. They can't do their job. They want to be members of Congress. They can't do it with this kind of threat facing them all the time. So we're going to try to artfully pivot here and try to scoop up um, this Jacobin piece that we were going to talk about as well. Yeah, let's scoop it up with a... The piece is by Branko Marchetic. It's called The FBI's Domestic War on Terror is an Authoritarian Power Grab. It's a piece that begins discussing uh, new revelations from BuzzFeed News about how intimately involved the FBI was from the very beginning with the foiled terrorist kidnapping plot against Michigan Governor um, Gretchen Whitmer last year. I should also say uh, the piece came out on July 28th, so just uh, last week. But it quickly pivots from just talking about the specifics of the Michigan kidnapping plot to making broader conclusions about how the left should view the FBI's targeting of right-wing terrorist groups. Then it becomes, uh, halfway in, a dire warning about the enhancement of national security powers and anti-terrorist powers because of uh, January 6th and the supposed hypocrisy of the left for going along with the crackdown on uh, the insurrectionists. Marchetic says, post-January 6th, far too many progressives suddenly turned into a mix of Rudy Giuliani and George W. Bush, calling for harsh prosecution of those who had committed only property damage on January 6th, or even just walked around not doing very much. As Tom Cotton, who he doesn't tell us is one of the most arch-reactionary people in the world, uh, and, and a senator from, from Arkansas. As Tom Cotton noted gleefully after the incident, quote, some liberals appear to have shed their reservations about the use of force now that the mob carries different signs and chants different slogans, end quote. Marchetic doesn't make an argument here. He reports, but later he says something about liberal-minded audience that has switched its position. So he's basically insinuating that there's some hypocrisy here, which I think is 
it's just nuts when you when you look at the the issue. I mean, first of all, there's unless somebody is a is a is a pacifist, and there aren't you know like real principled pacifists, you're gonna make a distinction between you using force to defend yourself and other people using force to try to kill you. So that seems to not play any part in in Marchetic's thinking here. And the other thing is. The, the, the issue of comparing apples and oranges here, I mean, his basic problem is always is the, the whole Jacobin crowd is it refuses to take the far right threat seriously enough. It does not view the far right threat as the threat of this time, the be all and end all issue. Yeah, it's like a total abstraction from the realities of contemporary politics and like completely failing to see the threat of fascism in America and on the world stage instead still somehow thinking we're still in the 90s and our primary enemy is the Democratic Party and uh, neoliberalism and we're still just think of the FBI as like Pro targeting left-wing activists. That's exactly the issue. This is exactly the thing, right? That's that's what I was trying to say. It's like the issue is, you know, we got to not support the national security state. We can't support the FBI. Yeah, well, why? In what context? You know, I mean, I'm not supporting the FBI either, but there is really a difference between the FBI going after, you know, fascist insurrectionist Trumpites and the FBI going up against the left just to try to crush the left. Those are not the same thing. And even if it's the same people pursuing it, and even if they could, in principle, use their powers against the left that they gain, perhaps, in this process, although I don't know that they actually have gained any powers, they would do so anyway. I mean, it's not like the, the FBI has a great record for uh, adhering to legality, right? So when they want to go against the left, you know, they will, and, 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 that, and that will happen. But to... The lack of any context here is, 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 is just mind-blowing to me. Well, it's funny. Of course, we're all used to being worried about the dangers of the national security state and the curtailment of civil, civil liberties and the things that are used to justify the expansion of those powers. And obviously, there are concerns there. But we never hear people on the left raising the alarm bells and saying that we should take a stand against the FBI when it's, for instance, hunting down child sex traffickers or child pornographers or serial killers, right? They never are saying like, oh, you know, watch out. They're using DNA and cybersecurity to track down, you know, child sex traffickers, but it'll be us next. This is a really, really interesting point that you've raised. I hadn't thought about it. Wow. What this means is people do not make that comparison because they see that they are so different from pedophiles, etc., that you wouldn't even make the comparison. But something about them makes them think that they are, in some meaningful sense, like these insurrectionist fascists. I don't know what sense that is, okay? But... I mean, it's clear that they think they've got more in common. You know, it's probably some kind of, like, you know, anti-establishment politics here. Like, the establishment doesn't like us and doesn't like them, and so somehow we're on the same side, you know? I mean, that eventually leads to Marjorie Taylor Greenwald, you know? Well, we're going to have to leave it at that, but up next, our conversation with Avishai Green about bullshit and populism. Today we are pleased to welcome to the podcast Avi Shai Green, who is speaking to us from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where he is a doctoral student in political science. He recently penned a paper called Speaking Bullshit to Power, Populism and the Rhetoric of Bullshit, and Andrew and I both read the paper, thought it was great, and wanted to have him on the podcast to talk about his paper. Thanks for having me. Before we started recording, Avi Shai, you were telling us about um, how you had been following the U.S. election in 2015-2016 pretty closely from overseas and how shocked and surprised you were when Trump won and how that uh, inspired you to um, write on the topic and and pursue this issue. What was it about Trump's victory specifically that you decided to focus on? 
the one thing that stood out to me, and I'm not alone in this, obviously, is just the issue of post-truth, as some have called it, in the whole lead-up to the election and Donald Trump's uh, persona. So this is what I focused on. I decided to write a paper about post-truth and Donald Trump, and very quickly I thought that an interesting angle, not Donald Trump's personal psyche or you know something specific to the Republican Party, but maybe let's look at it through the prism of the type of politics that he represents, which is populism. So Avishai, your paper focuses on bullshit, uh, not just lies, but what you call bullshit. What's the difference between lies and bullshit? So I'm basing this on a very the, the seminal paper in, in the field of bullshit, which is Harry Frankfurt's On Bullshit. And the distinction he makes there is that lying is deceiving about a specific point. It's when you know X and you want your audience to believe not X. So you, you know the truth and you're trying to deceive about that specific point. And bullshit is just a complete lack of concern with the truth. So you're saying that, that not X... But you might know that X is, the, is actually the truth. You might not know whether X is true or not. You just don't care. You don't even necessarily care that much about convincing people that, you know, actually not X is, is, is the case. What you care about is deceiving about your personal intention. You're just trying to, to create the impression that you care about something or that you know what you're talking about. Or you're trying to create some impression about yourself and the content is really very secondary to whatever it is you're saying. I, I was n not at all the first person to point out that this is what Trump excels at, right? Trump is a bullshit artist. In fact, Harry Frankfurt himself, who's not a young man now, he in 2016 uh, wrote just a, an op-ed in Time saying Trump is the ultimate example of someone who engages in bullshit freely. Because many of the things that Trump says you wouldn't describe them as a lie because, first of all, it's not clear if he knows what, what the truth is. And second of all, many of the things he says, there's just, there's no rational reason for lying on that specific point. Like He lies about things that just are demonstrably, provably untrue. And, you know, if the goal of lying is deception, then that, that doesn't fit that goal, right? You want to lie about something very specific, right? When you say that your inauguration is, in fact, the largest, that's just a ridiculous lie to say. And, and it doesn't fit the goal of lying, but it does fit the goal of bullshit, which is just to, you can say whatever you want. You know, people can, they can hit you with facts all they want. It doesn't matter. So as I'm saying, a lot of people have pointed out that Trump engages in bullshit. What I was interested in is, does this have to do with Trump's populism? And in fact, maybe Trump isn't alone. I think once I started reading about it, I think he, the other populists in, indeed also engage in bullshit. And if that's the case, you know, why? Is there anything that uh, puts them together? You know, I didn't write about this in the paper, but uh, obviously the Israeli perspective is one that also had an impact on me. And, and Benjamin Netanyahu, while he's a very different person than Donald Trump, and I think his motives are different, but this can also be said about him to some extent. He also is very, very brazen in the untruths that he says. And some of them you could call lies like he's you know, really trying to convince you about a specific point, but sometimes he really just kind of asks you not to believe your lying eyes and says, you know, what are you talking about? So that, so that was um, the perspective that I started with. Just try and, and understand if there's anything about populism, about the logic of populism or the epistemology of populism that would make adherence of populism more uh, vulnerable or susceptible to engaging in bullshit, if that makes sense. A lot of our listeners were probably familiar with uh, Harry Frankfurt's book paper on bullshit it was a very very big deal i don't know 15 16 17 years ago because it got published as basically a stocking stuffer little book uh that was you know at the checkout counter at barnes and noble and other bookstores and i think people thought it was a joke a parody of academic discourse or something by and large i don't know how many people read it i mean i i've read it i've quoted it and, and so forth but it was kind of, I think, regarded as a parody. And there's a well-known philosopher, uh, British, Simon Blackburn, and he wrote a book review in 2006. And he said that uh, Harry Frankfurt's book uh, on bullshit, quote, works so well because it maintained the tone of clinical academic gravity in dealing with an essentially ludicrous topic. The oratorical rotundity with which it chased an Aristotelian definition of bullshit increased the humor and was perfectly matched by the schoolmasterly rebukes it issued to previous authorities for getting it wrong. And then, perhaps to our surprise, the quest succeeded. So, you seem, however, to be taking bullshit 
category very seriously. Uh, how would you react to what Blackburn wrote? Is the topic of bullshit essentially ludicrous? Do you think Fra- Frankfurt was trying to be funny or inadvertently being funny? He was maybe inadvertently funny, but I don't think that's a bad thing because I think bullshit... Yeah, it's, it's ludicrous, but that doesn't mean it's not serious at the same time. And this is the feeling that I think I at least often feel when just thinking about reality over these last few years, right? It's ludicrous to be seriously talking about the fact that the president claimed that, you know, the previous president founded ISIS, for example. It's, it's just a, it's a ludicrous discussion to be part of, but this is what's happening and it has palpable effects on reality. It's ludicrous in the sense of that it's crazy, um, but it's definitely something that actually is serious to talk about. And I think Frankfurt was being serious, which isn't to say that I think part of his success is, yes, in the fact that people find it kind of amusing to even talk about this, and it's uh, more appealing than other titles of philosophy books. And probably I, as an undergraduate, also is part of what influenced me to pick up on bullshit and start reading it. But I think once you get into it, it's actually quite an important topic. Let's get into some of this discussion about about bullshit. So you note in your paper that Trump supporters are frequently quoted as saying that Trump, quote, tells it like it is, which is always like for people that realize that he's full of shit. It's like always mind blowing to hear people say that. So like what do they what do you think they mean when they say that? Do they believe that his lies are true statements or is there something else going on? Like what is attractive about his bullshit? I just want to start by saying that quote is one of the main motivations I had in thinking about this over the past few years, by which I mean, it seems to me like there's pretty much a paradox here. If Trump is so untruthful, if he has lied 30,000 times over his presidency, as I think the Washington Post has counted, you know, one would think that his diehard supporters, of which there are many, just simply would care about other issues, you know, more, would be very, would like him because of his trade policies or because of his foreign policy or maybe something else in his personality, but simply just wouldn't be that interested in honesty. You know, you know, maybe they have a Machiavellian view of politics and it's not important. Right. Like you hear, you hear people say like, oh, well, they're making like a deal with the devil because they're going to get something out of it. They're, they're anti-abortion or they're, they want their Supreme Court justices. So they're just putting up with the bullshit so that they can get something else they want out of this deal with the devil. But then you, they get pulled and they say things like, oh, I love him because he tells it like it is. Right, exactly. So, I mean, maybe some people feel like they're making a deal with the devil, but, but no, when, if you listen and, and you take people, what they're saying at face value, it seems to be that actually Trump supporters really care about honesty. It's, it's the first thing they often mention. They, like, the main reason they say, I support him because he tells it like it is. Um, there are polls that back this up. It's not you know, just anecdotal. So this seemed to me to be like just really, really puzzling. Like, how can it be that at the same time, these same people are saying we care about honesty a lot, but also this is what we're accepting as honesty. To answer your question, I would like to suggest that they do mean what they say, but they are defining truthfulness differently or to phrase it a little bit in a gentler way. They're taking up one facet of truthfulness at the expense of another. And what I mean specifically by that is they're defining truthfulness essentially as being all about sincerity and not at all about accuracy. So this is a distinction that I'm making. It's uh, taken from uh, philosopher Bernard Williams and also not in those terms exactly, but similar distinction has been made by Habermas and um, Paul Grice. And they all sort of distinguish between in truthfulness or in truth telling, these are these two facets, right? So the value of accuracy means I have made an effort to make sure that what I'm saying actually corresponds to reality, right? Actually is true. And sincerity means I'm telling you what I know to be true. I'm, I'm faithfully reflecting what's inside of me. And generally, when we say truthfulness, we mean both of those or some combination of two of those. Um, what I'm suggesting is that populism in general, the logic of populism, leads to really significantly weighting sincerity at the expense of accuracy. And I, and I, I can explain why. I imagine I will in a minute. But if that's true, that actually can, I think, render a statement like Trump tells it like it is a little bit more plausible, right? If they think of him as being sincere, then maybe that's what they mean. And, and uh, you know, there are a lot of quotes that I think sort of back up that this is how a lot of people seem to be thinking about it. For example, 
in uh, the last convention in 2020, um, Melania Trump, giving a stump speech at the convention for her husband, says, total honesty is what we as citizens deserve from our president. Whether you like it or not, you always know what he is thinking. And the latter part of that statement, arguably, maybe it's true. It's definitely true that Donald Trump says what he wants. And this is sort of connecting that non-political correctness. It's basically saying that's the same as being truthful. The fact that he says what he wants, that, that that's what being honest means, in my opinion, which really, I think, that's a definition of honesty that is almost entirely based on sincerity and just doesn't seem to take accuracy into account at all. Right, so please do follow up. What, what is it about populism that gives rise to this lauding of saying what's on your mind or in your heart and basically discounting the accuracy of somebody's statements? Populism um, as an ideology, its main feature is that it sees society as stuck in a battle between two antagonistic groups, the people and the elite. And populists, obviously, they claim to be on the side of the people and the, rep the true representatives of the people as against the elite. And if those terms sound kind of vague, that's very true, and populism often defines the people and the elite in different ways. But populism always has that distinction. Now, when you look at how populism operates, then the moral framework of populism is based on demonizing the elite and the values of the elite and valorizing the people and their values. So if we just develop that a little bit more, one of the main values of the elite, start from that, end of the, the spectrum is um, intellectualism and the whole basically field of science and um, academia. Journalism as well really. These are fields that are elitist and populists, they denigrate them and they denigrate their values. And, and one of the, the main value in fact of science say or of academia is accuracy, is striving to make an effort to make sure that what you're saying is true. Obviously, accuracy carries with it a lot of, you know, a lot of characteristics that, that are elitist, at least in the sense of that's how they're conceived popularly. There's a lot of nuance and not um, making uh, categorical statements or easy solutions, but everything's very complicated and there's a lot of work. And these are things that populists, they disdain. They're an anathema to populists. By the way, I mean, this is true for populists really everywhere and anywhere. They always see academia as a threat. There's also political reasons for that. Populists, and this is another very central characteristic of populism, is that out of this very Manichaean view of society is locked in a battle, populists are essentially anti-pluralist. They view themselves as the representatives of the people, and they have simply no, not even no patience, but they simply don't view any other contestations of that power as legitimate. Now, this has to do with, you know, it has to do with political power, but it has to do with truth as well. Anyone who creates knowledge that can challenge um, the populist, especially when the populist leader is in power, has to be dismissed. And this, you know, this is, of course, true of academia and journalism. And, and this is, you know, what we've seen in the United States and all over the world especially in the past few years, this ongoing denigration of, um, you know, what they call the fake news media. So what I'm getting at is that I think, you know, this doesn't end with simply disdaining academics or journalists, but I think it's a general discounting of the value of accuracy. And the flip side of that is that populists, as I said, valorize the people, and that comes with a valorization of folk wisdom, of common sense. And they're oftentimes juxtaposed by populists themselves and also by scholars of populism as against each other, as saying, we don't need the egghead knowledge of uh, the people from the ivory tower. Us, you know, regular people, we have our common sense, and, and, that's, and that's better. That common sense is better. So if we take that seriously, if we say that the people are where the power lies, and the people are wise, and what we need is a leader who represents the people as directly as possible with as, you know, as little intervention in between, then what we want is someone who sincerely represents this common sense that supposedly lies in all us regular people. I mean, that is to say, we want a leader who is himself a part of the people, or at least represents them honestly, and we want him to say what he really thinks. And sincerity is, is, this, is this value of saying what you really think, of telling it like it is. 
you mentioned that the, the populist leaders view themselves as the only true representatives of the people. But this isn't just something that comes from above. That mindset that there is a people, the people, you know, some undifferentiated group of people or the real people, that they're all basically right thinking and all basically think the same and dissident ideas are coming from outsiders to the other. This is very deeply rooted, for instance, in the United States. You're probably familiar with the concept of stealth democracy. A book, I can't remember the names of the authors, written about the, the United States about 20 years ago. They kind of said, okay, well, these people are not authoritarian. It's not that they don't want democracy. They do want democracy, but here's how they think of it. And they, they were able to show some evidence that there's a large plurality of Americans who think this way. Basically, they view the people as all thinking just like them. Uh, they don't really understand that there are different interests and, and widely different views, and therefore when things go wrong, it's, you know, the politicians are, you know, being paid off, or there are special interests behind everything, and a special interest becomes any time that you're going against what they think, because they, the people, they represent the popular interest. The authors of this book were kind of sanguine about this and calling it democracy. Other people have talked about this. Uh, for instance, Peter Mulberger said basically this is right-wing authoritarianism and racism and so forth, and he did some empirical work and showed it's related to right-wing authoritarianism and social dominance orientation and so forth. Um, but the point is, like at least in the United States, the populist leaders who claim to be the representatives of the people, the real people, all have this general will, common interest. This is the, the everyday thinking of millions upon millions of people, at least in the United States. Well, that may be so, and if so, that probably explains to a great deal why populism is, in fact, popular. Right, the general uh, claims that populisms make really do appeal to a lot of people. Um, the, the the basic logic of populism is claiming to a large amount of people your specific problems in life are all part of one big problem. You are part of the people, and your problems are part of one big problem that this other group, the elite, is responsible for in repressing the people, which is us, and we need to fight against that. I mean, I think you're right that a lot of people think this way. Certainly populists do, that there cannot be any legitimate reason to disagree. You know, there's a million and one examples of this mindset, but um, basically any dissent is just seen not only as problematic, but it can't be seen as a representation of the people. That's that's the issue. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, any any negative poll is fake news. He, he said this many times. Um, this is the, the view that ascribes any time that there's a demonstration, those people must have been paid off. This, by the way, is an international thing. Again, here in Israel, I'm, I'm intimately familiar with. There's been a very big protest movement here the past year or so, and it's a repeated accusation that protesters must have been paid off because how else could it be that they're taking to the streets to oppose uh, the prime minister. And of course, the apex of this way of thinking is the belief that it can't possibly be that the populist leader lost the election. It's just not possible. And thus, you know, there must have been malfeasance even when there's no evidence for it. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism 
extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So your paper, a lot of it is answering the question like why populist bullshit and uh, we've sort of already talked a lot about bullshit as sincerity but you also talk about bullshit as partisanship as infallibility as symbolism is the sincerity a bigger piece of the the answer to the puzzle and then also like maybe you could talk a little bit address the the other types of bullshit yeah i mean the development here is simply that you know, I, I really was just trying to think of uh, of what the connections could be, and I was just reading as much as I could and entertaining different explanations and, and sort of setting aside. So the earliest, I think, draft of this paper had six explanations or so, and eventually th these were four I went within this paper. And yes, to answer your question, I eventually think that sincerity is the deepest one, the one that, in my to, to me at least, is the most interesting because it has to do with the concept of truth itself and truthfulness itself. You know, if we accept it, it has pretty deep implications for people who are populist. But that isn't to say that the other ones aren't true. It's just that l later on, I, I followed up on that. I've, my master's thesis was all about trying to test this uh, sincerity thesis. That's what I'm working on now. But sure, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about the other ones. So. Well, the first reason, which we didn't even mention here, uh, is one that I set aside quickly, but I said sort of the most naive explanation I can think of is that populists, maybe the reason that they bullshit is because they're ignorant. Right. And we, we're familiar with that thesis here in the States, right? Because you hear Trump talk and it's clear that he is profoundly ignorant on all sorts of topics, but it doesn't stop him from talking about it and displaying his ignorance. And there's a gray line between like what is maybe him lying or bullshitting what is and what is just him actually having no clue like what reality is. Right. There is truth to that. Like certainly with Trump, whenever he talks about policy, whenever he talks about history, whenever he talks about really anything that's not his own private knowledge, he's ignorant of it and can't admit that he is ignorant of it. And, and again, this actually has to do with the reasons that we were discussing before, that he, he can't admit or even comprehend that scientists or academics or advisors or military people have anything to tell him. Since he was elected by the people, he knows what he's talking about. But that being said, I think that this is just only a partial explanation because some populists aren't ignorant. Some populists aren't Donald Trump. They actually you know, are professional politicians. They do uh, know what they're talking about, whether it's uh, Orban or or Netanyahu or Farage. And even Donald Trump, sometimes he's, he bullshits about things that he does know about. He bullshits about 
things he's done, things that are in front of his eyes, whether it's uh, the size of the inauguration is a simple example, but even things that are you know more direct, things that he's done. So I sort of set that aside. I don't think that's like the deep explanation. So the next one I thought of is maybe this is basically just an issue. I called it bullshit as partisanship, which basically means since the populist audience is so so devoted and, and so um, what some people would call tribal, I suppose, then there's just no incentive to make an effort to tell the truth and be accurate because basically the populist leader can be assured that his followers are going to go along with whatever he says. Right, and this is sort of the the logic of echo chambers that's discussed a lot in our day and age. That you know, a closed partisan group just tends to accept through a process of, of uh, confirmation bias. It's both rational for the individual in the group to not challenge pieces of information that are favorable to the group's goals, and this creates a social process in which anything that doesn't fit is sort of thrown away, or effort is expended in order to discredit it or debunk it. And anything that does fit is amplified a thousand times over and becomes common knowledge within the group. And again, I think this is, in fact, definitely a process that happens. I do think it explains part of the issue, just that populist leaders don't have much incentive to tell the truth and, and or even to lie, right? Because, again, bullshitting isn't lying. And one difference between the two of them is that lying is harder. Lying requires effort. You have to be specific about what you're lying about. You have to know what you're lying about. Bullshitting is really, it's easy. It's kind of a creative act of just sort of saying whatever you want. So I think that explains part of it. But obviously, populists are not the only partisan uh, group out there. So I don't think this is the full explanation. Although populists are, I think, more partisan in the sense of, I'm using partisan in, in this sense, in the sense of because they have this Manichaean worldview, it's very anti-pluralist. So if you're a true believer that your leader is the representative of the people, then it's really quite a leap for you to consider perhaps opposing information. Obviously, other ideological groups also can be quite partisan, but I do think it's especially characteristic of populis, populism, by which I mean both populist politicians and like believers. Uh, the next one I talked about, I called it infallibility, which is kind of a big term, so I'll explain what I mean, because it's actually something quite specific. I think populists absolutely have no choice but to, certainly to not tell the truth, but I, th I think also to bullshit, at least they have a very, very strong incentive to bullshit whenever evidence arises that casts it out on their being the true representatives of the people. As we've discussed a few minutes ago, populism, the core claim of populists is we are the true representatives of the people. And if we take that seriously, then the main prediction that flows from that is that populists need to be popular. They need to win. And whenever evidence comes up that sheds doubt on that, then this puts populists in a tough spot. And in a democracy, Right, populists maybe that are in autocracies, this is easier for them. But in a democracy, there's a lot of evidence of that all the time. There's free speech, and people can demonstrate against you, and they can criticize you, and there are polls that people can react to what you're doing, and most importantly, there are elections, um, and sometimes you're going to lose them. And this puts populists in a tough spot, because the one thing that, you know, no politician likes to lose, but the one thing that other politicians who aren't populists can do, and normally do do, is when they lose, come out and say, I ran hard, but the people decided differently. They don't even have to say I respect it, but just, you know, the people decided differently, and that's what's going to happen. And populists really can't do that. They really can't make that small leap of saying, this is what the people decided, even if I don't like it. For that reason, they're put in a spot where they always have to deny reality when there's this evidence, and claim that there was cheating, or there was outside interference, or there was something else. And the reason I think this leads specifically to bullshit, again, is because, again, lying is hard. Lying has a pretty high bar to, to clear. And, um, you know, you have to, if you're, if you're going to lie effectively, that is, you're expected to provide evidence. And uh, bullshitting is easy. And I think a really good example of this is everything that's happened since the election in the United States. You see this huge gap between the claims that the Trump team and supporters are making in the media and the ones they make in a court of law, right? In a court of law, there's a high standard. I think you, you can lie in a court of law if, you, if you're really good at it and if you have a lot of evidence and if you're willing to take the risk. But um, one thing you can't do there is just make claims that aren't based on anything. But outside, you really can. And in fact, it's pretty easy to. And, and if you just throw a lot of things out and you say, one day, 
it was the Chinese, and you know, the next day you say it was dead people voting, and the next day you say it actually it was Italians um, through satellites, then the fact that you're not making sense and you're not being coherent or consistent isn't necessarily a bug. It can actually be a feature of your communication. So all of that is to say is that I think in the specific cases in which doubt is cast on populists' um, claim to be the true representatives or champions of the people, then they're very likely to choose to bullshit. Uh, I want to point out that Avishai is not just saying this now in retrospect. Uh, his paper from, I think, what, beginning of 2019, the version on academia.edu, right. writes, when faced with unfavorable election results, populists are forced to deny their validity since the people's support for the populists is unquestionable, the election results must somehow be wrong. So that certainly is a prediction that we are living through as true right now. Right. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to take credit for being very prescient, but I think the truth is, is that if you were listening to Donald Trump, this was always clear. I mean, he said before the 2016 election, he said very clearly, he was asked, will you accept the election results? And he, he wouldn't say yes. He said, I will accept them if I win. So already then, who, who knows what would have happened if Hillary Clinton would have won? I, I think it wouldn't have been as bad just because he wouldn't have had the same power he had in 2020. But th this was always clear. And, you know, if you go even further back, I, maybe I didn't know this back then, but I've, I've learned about him since then. This is true for him his entire life. When he lost an Emmy 20 years ago, even then he was claiming that, you know, it wasn't legitimate. So he, he never has had the instinct to say, you know, I lost and uh, that sucks, but that's what happened. Right. And, and regarding the, the falsely accused black kids in Central Park, the Central Park Five, he was on this vendetta against them and wanted them executed and they were proved innocent. And even after they were proven innocent, he maintains that's false and that they're, they're guilty and they should be executed or whatever. Yeah, that's his M.O. So another reason populist bullshit that you go into in your paper is uh, bullshit is symbolism. What's that all about? Right. So the claim I'm making here is this, that populists often have a reason to want to, they want to convey messages that are better conveyed implicitly or symbolically rather than explicitly. And the reason for that is because their messages are hard to prove. It doesn't mean they're necessarily not true, but they're simply hard to, they're hard to prove. And this, has, this is true for populism's really main foundational claim, which is society is in this battle, we are the people, they are the elite. Is it possible to prove that? Maybe, but you know, you have to be very specific. You know, who are the people? Who are the elite? What, what makes these people the elite? Why are they bad? What are they doing? It's easier to convey this information symbolically. And the way that this plays out in populist speech is that there's very often a literal layer to what they're saying and a symbolic layer lurk lurking just underneath. In American politics, a lot of times, this is similar sort of to the concept of uh, dog whistles, which is when you want to convey something racist and you do it only implicitly. But that's, you know, for reasons of, you know, you don't want to be caught saying something racist. But, but I claim they do this sort of much more generally, not only when they want to say something racist, but whenever they want to say really anything that shores up this very general foundational claim of all of us are the, all the people and are good and they are the elite and are bad. So, you know, to make this a little bit more concrete, the, the example that helps me think about it is the claim of uh, Obama not being born in the United States, being born in Kenya. So this is a literal claim, right? It has literal content, but it seems very clear that the main point of making such a claim is the symbolic undertow of it. Right? The literal claim is, you know, it's legalistic. If it were true, then it would have a dramatic uh, result because that means he isn't eligible. But, you know, I don't think many people really thought that that would be provable. And anyway, it's not that most people listening to that necessarily know the constitutional repercussions. But what most people hearing this claim understand is the very, very lurking near the surface symbolic claim, which is he is other. He is not American. He is, in this case, African. He's also maybe Muslim. He's other, and he's, and in that way, he's bad. So I think this is an example. And just to clarify, I'm not saying that speaking symbolically in general is bullshit, right? If, if I say a metaphor, if I say, you know, America is a, a shining city on a hill, maybe, then it's very clear I'm speaking symbolically, and I wouldn't call that being bullshit because everyone, you know, it's clear that that's what I'm saying. But what I'm referring to is claims that take the form of literal claims, 
And, and this is a, a distinction made by uh, Elizabeth Anderson from uh, Michigan. She says that populists hijack the tools of uh, empirical speech, but actually the point of what they're saying very often is not empirical at all. It's saying something much deeper. And, and if this is the case, if you're saying something, but actually you don't care about the truth of it, you care about conveying something else, then that's a form of bullshit. You're probably not even concerned with convincing people of the literal truth of what you're saying. You're more concerned with conveying something else. Right. And you, you talk in the paper, you draw the connection to what has surprised a lot of people, that fact-checking and similar methods of getting accurate information, they, they don't work at getting the populist leaders to back down. The followers are unmoved by this. This seems like unbelievable if you take the words of these people as literal empirical statements. But if you take them as symbolism, we don't care about whether they're accurate or not, so we don't care about what the facts are. We still are expressing what we feel. It just rolls off one's back. And, and more than that, they often are met with a backlash against the fact-checkers themselves or whoever cites them, which is another example of populist contempt for elites and for the elite value of, in my opinion, of, of accuracy, of striving towards accuracy. You know, fact-checking is the most clear example of that value. There were a few days ago in the Washington Post, uh, Alexandra Petri wrote a column about the January 6th commission, and she said regarding the Republican pushback, I mean, basically the whole Republican Party, except for uh, Cheney and Kinzinger, she said, quote, the point is that the specifics don't matter. What matters is that we are being told blatantly, repeatedly, and without shame that we simply did not see what we saw, and we are expected to go along with it. This is an exercise in power to see how malleable our reality really is. And I noticed that this was among the categories that are not in your paper. You go about uh, sincerity, symbolism, partisanship, and infallibility. But what about bullshit as dominance politics, as uh, Josh Marshall of uh, Talking Points Memo refers to it? In other words, might it be the case that at least to some extent, this bullshitting is an attack on the rest of us. It's gaslighting us. It's showing that we don't have to accept uh, your reality. We've got alternative reality. We've got alternative facts. And we can fly in the face of everything and assert ourselves against you. And we can exercise our power this way. It seems to me that, that that's what Trump, for instance, does. And it seems to me that that's what Trump's followers like. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, you're correct that my paper didn't touch on this, but um, I've since accepted this also as definitely part of what's going on. In fact, you know, as I said, I, I've adopted Harry Frankfurt's definition of bullshit, which is by far the most accepted one. But since he wrote that, other people have come out and offered you know, differing definitions. And one of them by um, Riedel, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, is basically precisely defining bullshit in this way. He, uh, he says, Bullshit is speech that disregards the function of truth-telling so blatantly that it expresses a feeling of superiority on behalf of the speaker towards his audience. And this is definitely something that I think is observable. This is a function of bullshit or of post-truth, if you like, that's identified very often with post-Soviet Russia and specifically with Putin, of just this display of power of just saying what you want. Masha Gessen from The New Yorker has written about this in the context of, of Putin and also of Trump, saying that for them, they desire to assert power over truth itself. So for example, when, when Russia invaded Crimea a few years back, so at first they claimed that they hadn't done it. They claimed that it was, it was a spontaneous militia, the soldiers we were seeing on television. And then once evidence surfaced proving that in fact it was Russian soldiers, and Putin was asked about it, he didn't miss a beat. And he said, of course, it was Russian soldiers. What did you expect? You think we wouldn't send it? You know, we'd be crazy not to. W what this feeds into is, in the quote you read by Petri, you said, without shame, I think this is a very central component. And of course, I I'm very frustrated that Trump, it was very rare, the cases in which he was called to his face on his bullshit. But whenever he did, it didn't have much effect because he would just double down without shame, without missing a beat, saying one thing and then, and this was last year, 
He said, I hadn't left the White House in months during a press conference, and he was corrected in real time by a journalist saying, actually, you left just last month to do a rally. And he said, well, I did a rally. How could I not do a rally? So, so there's a real lack of shame here. And, and, and it also serves a further goal, which is basically acting as a loyalty test. If I'm going to say something that's obviously not true, then I'm really setting a pretty difficult test for people who are supposedly my followers are on my side to see if they're going to accept it. We've seen this with Trump again and again and again. Just basically, it's, it's a pressure Republicans feel and in most cases have well, either failed or succeeded at the test, depending how you look at it, in accepting whatever crazy thing he's saying. It started again with the inauguration and today it's in its most pernicious form, which is the big lie, right? You basically can't be a Republican without accepting the big lie that the election was stolen. So, you know, what could be more of an expression of power and dominance of this person who isn't even in power anymore? He doesn't even hold any office anymore. He's in Florida, but this entire party has to bend over backwards to accept and even even more than accept, but really to fight to uphold this this lie. So we've been talking about Trumpist bullshit and Trumpist populism, which makes sense because that is so in your face nowadays. But um, you know, there's also been a rise of left populism in American politics and in other places in the globe. So does left populism function the same way? Do left populists also bullshit? Does the bullshit look the same? That's a good question. And um, I'm going to offer a, an answer that has at least two parts that may, may seem to go in slightly different directions. You know, I should say, I'm definitely not an expert on left populism to the same extent. But that being said, I do think that the explanations I've provided, they're based on kind of the tenets of populism in general. And for that reason, they should be true for populists anywhere and everywhere to the extent that they are true at all. And, and there are examples of that. There, there definitely are many, many examples of right-wing populists for which this is true, both in the United States and all over the world. But there are also examples, I think, of leftist politicians who don't show a, a commitment to truth. And I'm thinking mostly of um, Latin America like Hugo Chavez, or um, I believe in the paper I, I give the example of uh, Obrador, who's the current leader of Mexico, but 15 years ago when he lost, he also couldn't accept the fact that he lost, and he, um, he even found like a shadow government and pretended to be president for a few years. And that comes from the same place. That being said, I do think that if all this is true, then it's true for the definition of populism that I've been using, of which a central component is this anti-pluralism, is this claim not only to represent the people, but to exclusively represent the people. And it's been called into question, not just by me, but actually by the scholar who sort of leads this definition of populism that puts pluralism, anti-pluralism at its core, that's Jan Werner Muller, whether that definition is even true for some people that are, that are generally considered left populists, by which I mainly mean Bernie Sanders. So by this definition, it's not even clear that Bernie Sanders is a populist in this sense. Yes, he, yes, he claims to represent the people. Yes, he rails against elites, in his case, business elites. But this fundamental anti-pluralism, this fundamental claim that I and only I represent the people isn't there. And for that reason, I'm not, I, I'm not sure that it, it follows for definitely some of the people that are considered left-wing populists because they don't ascribe to this deep logic of anything that, that goes against us can't be true. I still think some of the explanations I put forward m might be true for all populists um, because, uh, again, yeah, if you're a left-wing populist and you venerate the people and you really have a disdain for, for elites, it, it might in the, very, in the very same way follow that, you know, you dismiss scientific papers that fit, especially ones that don't fit what you want to say, and saying, you know, common sense tells us that, whatever it may be, that we need to uh, raise taxes. So <laughs> I hope, uh, I realize I've sort of um, said uh, one thing and, and then sort of said the opposite, perhaps. But um, that's kind of how I think of it. I'm not really sure. Well, hearing your description of bullshit and how it functions in right-wing politics, I was reminded of some features of left populism. I think that one of the hardest things for left populists to deal with in American politics is the fact that half the country is diehard reactionary, Trumpite. And for left populists who have this idea that, that the, the masses, as this undifferentiated mass, have some sort of essence to them that is essentially progressive or potentially revolutionary, um, it's difficult for them to wrap their minds around the idea that half the country is rapidly reactionary. And so 
we often see some types of bullshit in the way that they try to deal with that reality. Something that Andrew and I have criticized before in the podcast has been this practice we often see of taking very abstracted single-issue polling and trying to use that as proof that there is some appetite for socialism amongst the, a plurality of Americans. Like, they might take polls that ask people about their opinion about single-issue things like universal health care or job guarantees or free college education in a way that's abstracted from sort of partisan political situation. And those proposals might get high polling in the abstract. And then that's taken to mean that there is this mass base for socialism or social democracy in U.S. politics. Or even, for instance, like Jacobin Magazine, who explicitly has evoked the notion of false consciousness to explain like the Trumpite base, right? As if it's like theoretically a way of them having their cake and eating it too, because they can say, okay, well, these people have like a false consciousness that's reactionary, but they also have some innate revolutionary consciousness that we can just need to tap into with the right social democratic uh, appeals. And then they're just going to like drop all of their Trumpism. And it sort of suggests that their reactionary ideas are a product of the ruling class, they're of misinformation and not coming from some like deep belief in, in authoritarianism. Right. And then there's the continual bullshit regarding the sources of Trump support in the face of a tremendous amount of empirical disconfirmation. You still get uh, these people, including Bernie Sanders, basically saying that Trump's base is with Trump because neoliberalism has beaten them down economically and so it's a revulsion, reaction, rebellion against neoliberalism and not racism and sexism and xenophobia and authoritarianism. So you get a lot of bullshit and you get a lot of maybe self-delusion concerning who this potential base that they can supposedly attract away from, from Trumpism. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure I have much to, to really add to it to what you said. I, I think it's definitely a very central tension for a popular type of politics, right, or a left, left populism, if we'll use those terms. The fact that, yeah, in, indeed, many of the people are not, that's not where they are. I don't know what the solution is, but in the terms of that we've been talking about, I think that taking what people believe at face value is um, at least a starting point, whereas pretending that people don't really mean what they say, we're bending over backwards to prove, as you, you just gave examples, that actually the majority is with us on, on any number of issues, is definitely can lead to bullshit very easily. Because, you know, you just have to sort of do mental gymnastics to, to prove this thing. Well, um, Avishai, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I think we've had a really great discussion. Hey, thank you guys for having me. It's been really fun and interesting to talk to you about it. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. Thank you.